I know, I guess it was several years, maybe it was like the early 2000s when there was that whole craze like going on. And, and now I'm thinking, was it pushed by the Christian bookstores or what? But do you remember the prayer of Jabez? It was just kind of like going through like the church and, and it was some obscure verse. I, I want to say it was in Jeremiah. Does anyone know? It was like in Jeremiah or something. It was like, you enlarge my borders and all these kinds of things. It was like this prayer of blessing. And people prayed it and books were sold and whatnot. And, you know, you can believe whatever you think about the book or whatever and all those things. But at the end of the day, I, I believe that the prayer matters. Prayer does matter. And if it takes something like that to get us going in, into prayer, that's great. But it is a part of our Christian walk with the Lord, right? It's a part of our relationship with God that we come together, that we pray, that you as an individual are spending, right, time in prayer. Paul would tell us in Philippians, right, to pray without ceasing. And the idea there is not that, that you're going to stop necessarily and go into your closet, right, your prayer closet and pray, but I believe the intent and the heart of that is that you are in a 24-7, right, constant awareness of the presence of God, where you are speaking to the Lord, just in conversation. <clears throat> I think that when I first became a Christian, I kind of like, I thought, maybe I thought too much about prayer. You know how when you're going to do something, whether you're going to jump off a, a cliff into the water, you, you get stuck because you overthink it, and then you find that you're just up there forever, and sometimes we can look at prayer that way when simply prayer is simply having a conversation with the Lord, having a conversation with God, being in communication and communion with Him. But there is a certain part of, there is an, there's a certain aspect of prayer that becomes also a, a labor of love, where we're not just praying for ourselves and the things that we need, but it's a prayer that begins to, to look out and to see the people around us, that sees the people in our community and so forth, and then gets to a place of where we, we begin to fall on our knees and asking God. Like, and, and the wording there is interceding on behalf of people, right? Taking people, people that you know and that you love, and, and praying for them. I do pray a lot. I, I get texts all the time of just people asking me to pray for them. And, and, and I have to, in those moments, I do literally have to stop, otherwise I'll forget but one of the things I'm realizing in, in praying for other people, and we'll see that throughout today's message, is that it starts with a burden for people. It starts with having a burden for people. Looking at people and then feeling broken, basically, on their behalf. That is the prayer of Abraham this morning. Like, we're going to deal with some heavy stuff this morning, but that is really at the heart of Abraham's prayer to God on behalf of the people of Sodom. He is broken for them. And so may this morning, as we go through the word, may God search our hearts and begin to stir in us a brokenness for people, but even may, maybe more specifically, a brokenness for our own community. So let's look at that. In verse 16, we're picking up in chapter 18 where we left off, where we're still, the context is the angel of the Lord, right? God himself is there. Last week we talked about how these could definitely be a picture of the triunity of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was a picture. I'm not necessarily saying those were, in fact, right, the Spirit in, in human form and God the Father there and Jesus, but definitely the Lord himself was there, right, at least in one of the persons. And so we've, we've come to the end of that time of communion and fellowship, and, and the men are beginning to rise to go towards Sodom and look 
pick up in verse 16. It says this, Then the men rose from there, and they looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him. I would underline you know, that little part in verse 19, for I have known him. I think that's super important. In order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. See, these three men were ready to leave and, and, and to go, right? And there's almost a sense of even like baiting Abraham to come with them, right? And Abraham did. He did what was proper in that culture to walk with him, to go to the gate. It's it's something that you do. Even when people come to your own house, right, when they're leaving, you walk with them to the door, right? Now, sometimes you cross over that threshold when you get very familiar with those people and they become part of your family. You, maybe you stop doing that. But definitely when you're getting to know people and just wanting to honor them, it's something that we do. You walk to the door and you stand at the edge until they, until they leave. And you're like, bye, bye. You know, you're just like waving. Sometimes my kids will run to the edge of the driveway and it's like, bye, bye, you know. And then there's a sense of, of making them feel like, man, we are glad that you were here. But there's a little bit of motive here behind why Abraham is coming to the edge and still standing before the Lord. Now remember here, James called Abraham a friend of God. And here we see some of that being played out, right? The Lord says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, right? Shall I hide from Abraham? What about you? And I believe right here in this moment, it's an invitation to Abraham. It's an invitation to, to come, right? Because God didn't have to share any of the things that are about to happen with Abraham. But I believe right here in this moment, it's actually that, that shall I hide from Abraham is almost like, you know how when like, hey, my, my sister told me a secret, but I can't tell you. And it's just like, well, then why did you say anything? Like, just don't say anything, right? This is kind of one of those things in reverse. God wanted to invite Abraham to, to participate, to know the plans of God whether great or sobering, right? It was, it was the basis for knowing the plans of God. I mean, if you think about that, what was the basis for this? It was the fact that, that Abraham was invited into that circle of relationship. It was the fact that, that God had invited Abraham into a covenant with himself. And so now he's bringing them into this place. Why? Well, look at verse 19 real briefly. He says, for I have known him. I have known him. This is where, you know, when James says that he was called the friend of God, I always wondered about that, you know, throughout the years. But it's always Genesis 18 that takes me back to this moment of like, yes, this is why. This was the moment where God spent some real lengthy time with Abraham and just sat in fellowship and connection with him, like knowing, interacting, right? I mean, there's a lot that's not said there, but definitely there was more than just feasting, you know, on this barbecue that they had together. The wording here is it speaks of a personal, intimate relationship, or you could even say that, that Abraham was chosen by God here, right? It conveys the fact that Abraham was an intimate friend of God. And if he is truly then an intimate friend of God, and God knowing that Abraham, it says here, right, he's going to lead his family in godliness. He's going to lead his family in righteousness, right? It, it, it's this way of saying, like, look, Abraham needs to know this. He's a godly guy. He spent time with me. He needs to know what's about to happen. And I really think, and just kind of a side note, it's not really my first point, but, you know, it's something that preaches to me 
And, and something that, that I hopefully I preach this to, to fathers, that it really does, whether you're a single parent or, or fathers in the home, right? It begins with us to set the tone of righteousness in our families. It really does, right? We can't just let that to the world because the world is going to shape our kids how they want, but it's really up to us as, as, as fathers, right, to lead by example, you know, and lead by example in repentance, to lead by example in fatherhood, or to lead by example in, in dying to self. It starts with us. Now, right, our kids are going to do what they're going to do, but let it not be because we just did not lay the example of what it looks like to follow the Lord. God trusted Abraham here, right? And this is heavy. This is laying this out because what's about to happen is a pretty intense thing. So the first point we're going to come to is that God is holy and sin must be judged. God is holy and sin must be judged. Look what happens next as, he's, as he begins this, you know, this conversation with Abraham. As he begins to really lay out what's happening. It says, and the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done all together according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So there he lays it out. Look, this is what I'm going to do, Abraham. I'm going to go down to Sodom because the outcry is huge in Sodom. The idea is that there is like accusations that left earth that made it to heaven, so to speak accusing the things that are going on there in Sodom and the surrounding cities. Now, what does he say there? He says their sin is very grave. This is not just a simple word, but the meaning behind that means that it's literally physically heavy, the sin that Sodom and the people that were involved in. It was heavy. It was weighing them down. I can attest, I remember the, the, day, the day that I responded to Jesus, and maybe you've had this experience too, I don't know if there's any tie to this, but, but, but definitely I, I, we can relate when it says that their sin was very grave. The meaning is that their sin was heavy. I remember when I responded to Jesus, it felt like a what? A weight was lifted off because our sin was heavy. The sin that I was involved in, the things that I were involved in were weighing me down, like literally weighing me down. But it's not only that with Sodom here, that it was weighing them down. The idea is that it was flagrant and serious. The sin here, the word sin here is a very big word. It means that their sin was not only against humanity, not only against their society and others around them. It was a sin against themselves as well. But even above and beyond all those things, it was a sin against God. They, they were involved in all manner of sin. Sinning against themselves, sinning against the people around them, but more importantly, sinning against God. It's the very thing that, that Joseph uh, told Potiphar's wife. If you remember the story, uh, when, when later on down the road, right, Joseph sold into slavery in Egypt. And his mistress, right, his master's uh, wife kept throwing herself at him, right? And Joseph's response was like, how can I do this thing? How can I basically have an affair with you? And not sin against like your husband, not betray my, your husband's trust, although all those things will happen. But he said, first and foremost, how can, I, how can I do this thing and sin against God? That was his response. That was like the, the, the sin of Sodom. It was in rebellion against God, but it was not hidden. It was full on out in the open without any regard for God. Sometimes we blow it, right? 
And, and, and when we blow it, there is a sense, hopefully, if you're walking with God, the sense of conviction, right? Where you feel ashamed, you want to hide. That's a response, right? It's hidden, and, and you want to bring it out to the open. But sometimes it's really hard. But 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 God forbid, or danger, danger for the person who says, you know what? I don't care. I just don't even care anymore. I don't care who sees me. I don't care who walks in on me. I just don't care. And that was really the heart of the people. That that their sin is very grave. It's, it's encompassing all those things. All those things. This sin was so heavy and blatant that it made it to the ears of heaven. So what was so heavy that God himself had to come down, so to speak, and see the things going on in Sodom and its surrounding cities? Now understand, all sin is the same before God. All sin separates us from God. But definitely there are certain sins for sure that have greater consequences on humanity. They have greater consequences on your life. Right? For sure. They were so far gone in their sin that it was moving heaven in a bad way. Can you imagine that? Like when the Spirit of God is moving, it's like you, you want to see heaven and earth in this place. Here on the opposite, they were all about what was going on, their sin, that it was moving heaven in a bad way. Here's what Jude actually says what, about what was going on in Sodom. In, um, in the book of Jude, it's like one chapter right before Revelation, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it's like literally one, there's no chapter. It's just Jude and then a verse. But here, here's, here's verse 5, right, given this context. And, and I think this is just an important thing, right? You know, when we look at like commentaries and things like that on the Bible, I think one of the best commentaries on the Bible is actually the Bible itself. And it is amazing how some of these books refer to things that happened thousands of years previously um, versus they give us insight into things that sometimes, you know, commentaries didn't give us. But look what it says in verse 5, Jude. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe, right? Speaking of like the, the crossing of the Red Sea and so forth. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their abode, right? He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Speaking of fallen angels. But then look what he says in verse 7. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Like, it is heavy there, right? He's talking, I mean, basically, Jude, right, the brother of Jesus says, the things that were going on, in Sodom, the things that were coming and bringing like depravity to those cities had to do with sexual morality and had to, not just that, but also strange flesh. The idea here is that not only was there fornication, not only was there sex outside of marriage, right? But it was also happening in very unnatural ways. That's what the word strange flesh means. It means they departed from what was natural in nature the way God intended mankind to interact and to multiply and to be blessed, man, they let go of that and began to just be depraved, right? They departed from what God invented and intended to be holy and enjoyable. It became spoiled and defiled and shameful. Look at this greater insight. In Romans chapter 1, verse 24, here is even greater insight into this. 
says, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. You could say in modern day times that men became worshipers of themselves, like, right? Whatever we want, that's what we're going to chase. Whatever I want, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to seek after that and please myself, right? Whatever my hands have made, that's what I want. That's another way of saying that. They worship the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Right? The key words are, are, are what's not natural and what's not, what, what, what's not done in nature, so to speak, the way God ordained things. Jude is speaking to those very things. This was a sin against God, and it needed to be judged. God is holy. And sin must be judged. But here's the reality. That's what happens when we as mankind are in rebellion against God, right? Because all these things didn't happen overnight. I mean, we, I think we see the progression even of Lot. Remember when Abraham took Lot out and says, hey, whatever you want, go for it. You know, we're, we're obviously becoming too big, so you should go camp over there and I'll go camp over here, right? Lot saw the flashing lights of Sodom and says, like, that's a good place. I'll, I'll do that. I'll go hang out there. And then later on in chapter, I think it's like chapter 16, 17, like he moved from just hanging out, facing towards Sodom to actually being a part of the community of Sodom. And we see greater progression there. And then finally, and so God had, you know, so Abraham had to rescue Lot, right? He had to, he had to rescue out of Lot. By the time we get to chapter 19, we'll find that he is full on like, like in, like in the community. He's like a face of now the community of Sodom. He's like at the gates, which is another way of saying, like he's on the city council now. He went from on the outside, just pitching a tent, to being part of the community, to now like I'm in the city council. And you see this progression. And here's what's rowdy about that, of how sin just continues to go and over. And I think Greg's going to talk about that next week when we hit there. But when all this unfold, Lot is now like, oh man, what did I do? Like, Guys, we get out of here. God's judgment is coming, and everyone around him, including his son-in-laws, and the word says, they thought he was only joking. He's like, no, God is going to judge. Like, we need to go. We need to turn. Now's the time to repent. And because his witness was so tainted, because sin had just grew from this tiny little seed into something where it reached the heart of heaven, now it's too late. Like, Lot, you're just joking. Because if you really believe that, you would have still been with Uncle Abraham, basically, is what they're saying. If you really believe this, you wouldn't even be here among us. And they left, right? Now, I know this is hard. But see, God understands. God knows, right? He saw it in the garden. He saw it in the garden. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is holy and he must be true to his word and he must be true, he, he must judge sin. See, we have to understand that as followers of Jesus. He is holy. He is holy. 
right? He, he dwells in inapproachable light. To stand in the presence of God, it's like Ezekiel, right? When he was in the very presence of God and he saw the throne room of God, he said, oh, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. Unclean lips. And, and he asked, like, like, get a coal, right, from the fires, like the holy fires, and touch my lips, you know, so to speak. Because God wanted to send him, but he was like, I'm unclean. And so God touched his lips. Like he, he, he like touched his lips, and there's a picture of just like bringing the fire of God to bring holiness so that Ezekiel could go out and preach. But there is holiness. Now, now understand here, as much as that is true, also know this about God. Because God is not like me or you. He can't lie. He has to be holy. It's not like, like, come on, Dad, like it was only two Fs, like, Come on, can you just make groundation, so to speak, for just one week, not three weeks? Well, okay, if you do that, it's, it's not like that. He's not a man and that he can be in that way, but he is God, he is holy, he's just, he's righteous, and sin must be judged. But then here's also this other aspect of God. And this now then reveals a little bit about the heart of God. Look at my second point. See, as much as all those things are true, the Bible makes it also clear that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Look, look at Abraham's response. He's like getting it. He's like, okay, something's going on here. This is big, right? And look at verse 22. It says, Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood, or still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Right, underline that little line right there. Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Verse 24, suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you, right, to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked. You can underline that too. Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. And then you can underline this last line. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Now, now pay attention. As I said to those underlying verses, I just asked you to underline. Abraham stood before God. Abraham knew what was coming. He didn't have to be a genius to figure out, like, okay, it was great. We had this great fellowship. But he's obviously here for something more than just hanging out. He knew that because he stood and he stood there. The men went towards Sodom and he stayed there standing before the Lord. You, get, you can almost say like in a very real picture, he was in the very presence of God in that moment. Just standing before the Lord. And notice, because I believe Abraham knew what we've been talking about. That God is holy and sin and rebellion has to be judged. But notice he didn't question God's motive. Notice and say, like, why are you doing this? Why you got to be so judgy? Like, he wasn't looking at God that way. No. With a spirit of humility, Abraham appeals to the righteousness of God. Because if God is holy and sin must be judged, then it must be like righteous judgment. So he's almost like he's reminding God, shall not the judge of all the earth like do what is right. It's almost like he's appealing to God through his mercy, right? Based on the character and the goodness of God. He says there those three things. Would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Or in other words, it's not in your character to destroy the righteous with the wicked. Now when we say wicked, you got to remember, 
wicked in the sense that willful disobedience, willful rebellion against God. Willful rebellion against God. I don't know if this is like taking steam or not. Maybe with, not with you guys, hopefully, who are learned of the Bible. But there is a lot of people right now talking about the vaccine and how it's like the mark of the beast. I really don't believe it's the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is a willful rebellion against God. You are taking the mark of the beast because you are God-rejecting. You want nothing to do with God. Now, that, that, again, that can be another conversation. Is it a prepping for the world to come? Sure, definitely. We are definitely living in the last days. But this wickedness that God is talking about, it's talking about a willful rebellion against God. But here's what we do know about God in this regard. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in it because he is right and he is holy and he's just. Doesn't mean that God is unfeeling either. It's not as though like God is like, I mean, I mean, I mean God, is, it does, it's, it's, it's not as though as God doesn't have his heart broken when someone dies in rebellion against him. Because remember, dying and rejecting God is final. There's no coming back from that. That's finality. It's over. And God will be to the very last breath of every human being wanting to woo them and bring them into himself. That's why you have all these examples in the scriptures. I think one of the greatest examples is the thief on the cross, right? To his lying, dying breath, right? I mean, there they are being ready to receive the penalty of death on the cross. And the thief looks to Jesus and says, please remember me in paradise. He didn't say like, like he didn't even have to go through the sinner's prayer. Like, I believe that Jesus died for my sins and that he rose on the third day because that didn't even happen yet. He didn't have to go through any of that. All he said was, please remember me in paradise. That's all he did in his last dying breath. And Jesus on the cross, Jesus on the cross suffering says, surely today you will be with me in paradise. Like in his last breath, right? Ezekiel 18 verse 21 says this, but if a wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed, keeps all my statues and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he has done. He shall live. And then here, verse 23, it's like a rhetorical question. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? Like, do you think that brings me some sort of pleasure that people are, are in rebellion against God, that their lives are already um, exhibiting death because of their sinful actions? Do you think that brings me pleasure, says the Lord God? And not that he should turn from his ways and live. Even later on in chapter 33 of Ezekiel, he says, As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? Obviously, that was to Israel, but I believe it still displays the heart of God. God is not in heaven hoping everyone will blow it so he can pour out his wrath on them. It's not like God set a speed trap and then jumping for joy like when you blow it. He's like, ah, I caught you. Ha <laughs> You blew it. I was waiting for you to blow it and now I've got you. God would rather have relationship than judgment. Mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. In James chapter 2, that's the very thing that James, the brother of, of Jesus as well, said, mercy triumphs over judgment. So those are some very heavy things, right? One, that God is holy and sin must be judged. Two, 
prayer uh, uh, to, uh, what was that point? I don't even remember now. Ha! God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I've been talking about this whole time. But then look at the last one. Prayer works. Prayer works. Prayer is not just for you. I don't even have a title for that like yet, but there, there you go. Prayer, the prayer of Abraham. But look what happens next in verse 26. So like there's the invitation and Abraham just goes for it. He says, so Lord, so the Lord said, look, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I'll spare all the place for their sake. If, you, if we can find 50 people in Sodom, I'll turn away from destroying it. I'll turn away from pouring out my wrath. And then Abraham answered and said, indeed now, I who I am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there was five less than 50. Right? Five less than 50 righteous. Would you destroy all the city for the lack of five? And so then God says, if I find 45, I will not destroy it. And then he spoke to him yet again, says, suppose there should be 40 found there. And so he yet said again, I will not do it for the sake of 40. Then he said, let there... Let, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, okay, indeed now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. And so he said, I will not destroy for the sake of 20. Then he said, okay, let not the Lord be angry. I mean, Abraham is like a negotiator with God here, right? Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. Just 10. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. And so the Lord went his way. And as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Abraham returned to his place. So what did Abraham do? He say, go get them, Lord. Go get them. Take them down. They deserve it. Filthy people, they deserve what's coming to them. That was not Abraham's heart. No, he appealed to the mercy and righteousness of God on their behalf. He boldly, with humility, stood before God, and he began to appeal to God. Right? This is what it literally, it's a literal example of what it means to be in prayer for someone else. Right? This is the first time in the scriptures that we see an example of intercessory prayer. What is intercessory prayer? As I said early in the beginning, it's a prayer for someone else. It's going to God rather than just praying for ourselves, which is good at times. We need that. But in that moment instead, it's bringing someone else before the Lord with the heart and a view towards reconciliation. It's seeing broken people and saying, God, would you restore them? Lord, would you work in their hearts? God, please open their hearts. Lord, please help them to see the love and the mercy of God. Lord, even through like my life of destruction, they've seen it up close. God, would you use me then even as an example to show them what God can do? You're just, you're praying. Lord, bring back my son. Bring back my daughter. Please get him out of the We've seen the consequences of sin and drugs and alcohol and, and all these things and how it's wrecked. Lord, please, you're pleading with them. And it's very probable that Abraham knew some of the people of Sodom, right? He rescued them after all, right? I mean, the king of, of Sodom was like, Abraham, take it all. Take, take you know, spoils, take treasures, take everything. Like, you rescued our people. So there's very, it's a very good chance that Abraham knew some of the people of Sodom. And obviously, Lot was there. His family was there. It was a burden. He was petitioning. And it took boldness to stand before God and petition him, petition him for these wicked, these wicked people, right? See, intercessory prayer begins with a burden for people. 
it begins with a burden for people. Can prayer change God's mind? I mean, I think there, there's examples where we could see that, but I don't know if it's necessarily changing God's mind. Rather, I know that God is sovereign, and I believe that God wants to work in conjunction with mankind. Remember verse 17 and 18, the very beginning? And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. I mean, talk about like clickbait, right, back in those days. It was like, shall I hide this from him? Should I? And Abraham's just like, whoa, whoa, what's going on? And he sees it. He knows it. He begins to pray with them. It's an invitation for Abraham to participate in what God was about to do or not do. God considered him a righteous man. Shall I indeed hide this man who's going to be blessed, who in his seed all the world is going to be blessed by him? Right, James 5.16 says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Who are the righteous men and women? Us, those that have been redeemed by God. It's not just me. It's not just a pastor. It's not someone in leadership. It's all of us, the redeemed of Jesus, who have been given the righteousness of Christ, right? The effective, fervent prayer of a man who has been saved or a woman who's been saved. Man, it avails much. Prayer is important. Prayer is huge. God uses prayer in our lives. But I want us to think about this for a second here. Think about Abraham. Abraham was praying hard for Sodom and the surrounding cities. Right? He was, he was going before the Lord and like, if there's 50, if there's 40, if there's 30, like, I know I must be upsetting you, God, or something. But if there's, 30, if there's 25, if there's, 20, if there's 10, I mean, he is praying hard. No number too small for the Lord to move and act. And sadly, we'll find, right, in the end, that there was barely four. Barely four in Sodom, right? But here's the deal. Intercessory prayer begins with the burden for people. And so let me ask you a very pointed question. Calvary San Juan, you who come and who attend this church, right? Do you have a burden for Friday Harbor? Do you, as the church, individually have a burden for Friday Harbor? Look, I know things are really tough right now. There is a lot of division for sure in our community. There's a lot of differing political opinions. There's a lot of virtue signaling. There's a lot of self-righteousness. There's a lot of shaming, like coming from both sides of the aisle, politically and spiritually. We're flaunting our freedoms. We're flaunting our obedience. But the, at the end of the day, none of that really matters. At the end of the day, none of that really matters, right? Because there's going to be people from both sides of the aisle with the impending wrath of God to come. Both sides of the aisle. So, before being mad at people, be bo- before being frustrated with people, Let's ask that question again. Do you have a burden for them? Or do you have a burden for those, right? I mean, think about that. Do you have a burden for them, or are you more concerned with you being right and them wrong? Or do you have a burden for those who are just as lost as you were, right? Doing only what comes natural to all of us, right? I did what was natural, what came to me. Of course I'll live with the girl and try her out for whatever and then see if it's worth getting married. 
We just did what was natural, what just came. Like, this is how the world works, right? We just did what we thought was right. We didn't know in the end it led to death. But for us, we realize that. Are you praying for people? When you drive through town and look around, what do you see? Because I had to do that yesterday and like repent as I was just driving again around town and just like looking around and seeing things. What do you see? Do you see a community against you? Or do you see a community in need of Jesus? Because it'll change. See, if there's going to be any lasting change, to be any real kingdom impact, it's going to be through prayer first and foremost. Right? See, all these things are true. God is holy and sin must be ju judged. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he's given, a, given us the gift of prayer to intercede. He's given us a way, right, for all those things to be alleviated. All these things, actually, even these three things point to Jesus. And this is how good God is. And I'm going to end with this. All these things ultimately are fulfilled in Jesus. God is holy and sin must be judged. So what did he do? He sent his only son. He sent his only son to this world. And that son took the sin of the world upon his own back. See, we see example, example of God bringing out his wrath. But the moment... There came a moment in time when rather than, than pouring out the wrath on mankind, God poured out wrath on his own son. He poured out wrath on his own son. And what's even more intense is as we're studying this, right? God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So what did he do? He took his only son and committed him to death on our behalf, right? Isaiah 53 verse 10 actually says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. It doesn't please the Lord for wicked people to die, but it pleased God to, to put to death his son. Think about that for a second. He takes no pleasure in the death of wicked, but he was very pleased to send his son on our behalf. And then after that, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he sits at the right hand of God constantly making intercession for us, right? Jesus prays for you and me 24-7. The burden for humanity began in the garden, and God has not stopped praying since then. And the answer to shielding us from the wrath of God is all found in his son, Jesus. It's all found in his son, Jesus. That's where it starts, that's where it ends, and that's where, again, the goodness of God begins.